Hello, and welcome to Ask Dr. Dawn. The opinions expressed in this program are those of the speakers, and this is a program intended for education and entertainment. It should not be construed as a substitute for a medical consultation. On tonight's hour, we'll have my notes on a recent seminar I attended on breast cancer genes and functional medicine. We'll go over the main points, some of which may surprise you. We'll also present info on one of the most bizarre pediatric diseases you've never heard of, the panda syndrome. And of course, we'll have your letters, some great questions this week, by the way, and thanks to my listeners who do send in questions. I always like the contact and generally enjoy that. Uh, that's probably my favorite part of doing this. And oh, by the way, there's this thing called liking uh, something on in the podcast world. So if you're a podcast subscriber, please like me on whatever platform you use. It really helps other people find the show. All hail the great algorithm, right? Well, the conference was... Uh, Ah, yes, one of the many uh, remote conferences that one goes to nowadays, but it was an excellent seminar, and uh, two uh, women who intelligent and well-learned in genetics and functional medicine together in the same table. Oh my goodness, it was pretty impressive. So let's start out with some fun facts, or maybe not some such fun facts that you don't know about breast cancer. First of all, if you take all of the cases of breast cancer in women in the United States and you divide up, imagine a pie chart, okay? We're going to divide that pie up. What percentage of the pie have that terrible gene, the BR, the BRCA gene, right? The breast cancer gene, uh, BRCA1 and BRCA2, those are just terrible genes to have, right? You're guaranteed to get breast cancer. Not right. You aren't. And a lot depends on what your variation is with that mutation. And there's quite a lot of them. However, at worst, it does give you a gr- greater, in, in the worst case scenarios, a greater than 75% chance of breast cancer in your lifetime. Also, ovarian cancer, very high rates there. You don't want that gene. What percentage of breast cancer in America from that? 5%. What about family history? You get tested. I don't have BRCA. I don't have a family history of breast cancer. I've got grandmothers and great-grandmothers. They all live to old age. I'm good, right? No, not so much. Only 10% of those cases of breast cancer in the United States occur in women with a family history. Close relative, you know, distant second cousin doesn't count as family history. So what about the other 85% of breast cancers? Well, that's what we call sporadic breast cancer, which basically means, uh, ladies, any one of you, you've got a horse in this race. Now, you may have noticed recently seeing on your mammogram report a little disclaimer saying, you know, you have dense breasts. And this may limit the the ability to diagnose breast cancer. And that's what it says in the disclaimer. And it's like, okay, well, what do I do with that? You know, basically what you do with that is if you feel a lump, you get it looked at quickly. You don't just sit on it. But women with dense breasts actually have four to six times. That's a 600% increased risk of getting breast cancer. Because dense breasts are related, particularly after menopause, but even before menopause, they're they're related to having excess amounts of estrogen or very poor ability to break down estrogen. So if a woman has dense breasts, there's some things that we can do in functional medicine. We'll be coming to those a little bit later in this discussion. You've probably heard about breast cancer gene testing, where you'll get uh, a blood test and they'll look at about 300 different genes, all of which are associated with breast cancer. And these are derived from something called genome-wide association studies, GWAS for short. And all this is is association. So this gene in women with breast cancer compared to a large cohort of women who don't have breast cancer, 
this gene shows up 1.3 times more often. So we consider that there is an increased risk for breast cancer for having that gene. And a lot of these genes, we have no idea what they do. It's just guilt by association. And it's a very, very blunt instrument. So the genotyping, I think, for women with dense breast is probably a good idea, uh, even if you don't have a family history, because it helps us figure out exactly what level of surveillance you're going to need and what kind of surveillance. The gene typing, they'll generally drop you into a high, medium, or a low-risk group. But remember, increased risk is not the same thing as as the future. And a lot of this increased risk comes from genes, in our opinion, in functional medicine, that don't have anything to do with GWAS studies and breast cancer association, but have to do with genes that change the way your body processes estrogen. So if a woman has dense breasts, getting tested for her detoxification genes, particularly her phase one detoxification, is very important. Some women and I'll include my, I'll out myself to the extent to say that I also have this variation. Some women have a fast enzyme. It's called 1B1. And this fast enzyme has a tendency to attach its reactive group in the wrong place. I, Michelle Monique class gave this metaphor, and you know me, I love metaphors. So imagine that you have a pearl necklace that has 18 pearls on it. Each pearl is a carbon residue. And in your pristine pearl necklace, it, nothing's attached to it. You don't have anything stuck on it. But in the process of breaking down estrogen, the first step is either the 1A1 or the 1B1 will go ahead and take that 18 carbon string and attach a reactor group to it. Call it a jump ring, call it a diamond, call it a magnet. Let's call it a magnet. It attaches a magnet to pearl number two, pearl number four, or pearl number 16. Now that magnet can react with other things, right? That's what magnets do. Pearl is not Paris, but once you glue a magnet onto it, it's going to stick to things. And this stickiness is bad when it sticks to DNA. Now, in general, things get rapidly attached to another sticky molecule that uh, holds it in the gut so that it goes out with your bile, you know, from the liver into the bile, into the poop, and out the back door. So that's how it's supposed to happen. We'll talk more about that sticky molecule in a moment. But the magnet that the sticky molecule is attracted to, if it's on the four position, the body is not able to break that down. That form, If it attaches to DNA, it's not coming off. Now, that's going to cause a mutation on that piece of DNA where it attached. And if it attaches, let's say, in a promoter region, it might turn something on that you don't want turned on, like, oh, one of those embryonic oncogenes that we carry around, all tidally tied up. Uh, with the hope that they won't ever reactivate because they make our cells do things like, oh, migrate and grow really fast, just like an embryo, just like a cancer. So you don't want to form these DNA addicts and you don't want to make the 4-hydroxy that the body can't proofread and get rid of. What are some of the things that will make that happen? Well, if you smoke and you have that 1B1, or even if you don't smoke and you have a normal copy, you're going to amplify it. You're going to make it work faster and you're going to make more copies of the bad one that can stick to your DNA and damage it. Uh, there's also another one, which is 1A2, and that one sticks the estrogen on the 16 pearl, and that's pro-inflammatory. You don't want inflammation either, but inflammation is definitely a risk, but not as big a risk as direct DNA mutation. That's phase one right? You add this little magnet on the on the pearl necklace. Now, something comes along and it sticks to it. The body, the liver has all kinds of things. It can stick a sulfur on there, an acetyl group. It can stick a, a sugar group and it can stick glutathione on it. And these processes all use up the group because it's getting pooped out afterwards. And that's how we get rid of estrogen. And that's also how we get rid 
of in many, many, many environmental toxins. All of the plastics, dioxin, many of the pesticides, BPA, so many, parabens, all of these things go through this process, and they can themselves be activated in such a way that they can cause DNA damage or inflammation, neither of which we want. Alcohol interferes with the secondary detoxification step, and it competes for processing, and alcohol wins. So alcohol is associated with increased breast cancer risk because of its effect on detoxification. Now, one of our protective agents is progesterone. And progesterone actually works on the breast. It downregulates the estrogen receptor alpha in the breast. And the alpha is the one that when, it, it, when estrogen attaches to it, it makes the breast grow as a growth stimulant. There are also estrogen beta receptors or estrogen receptor betas in the breast. Progesterone actually downregulates the alphas. So you make less alpha and you make more beta, which makes your breasts less reactive and less vulnerable to being stimulated to grow by estrogen. Now, being stimulated to grow doesn't necessarily cause cancer. I want to emphasize that. But if there's already cancer, being stimulated is definitely for an estrogen receptor positive tumor, going to make it grow faster. Not at all what we want. Progesterone, as I said, downregulates the estrogen receptor alpha in the breast. All good, right? But guess what downregulates progesterone? Stress, either acute or chronic, stress of any kind. And what happens under stress, as many women who are still having periods will tell you, is their periods get weird. They don't necessarily ovulate. The body smarts, like you're that stressed out, I don't think it's a good moment to get pregnant. You know, we just won't kick out an egg. But if you don't kick out an egg, you don't kick out any progesterone because most of the progesterone in a menstruating woman comes from the ovary in the the actual location and call it the empty eggshell. It's called the corpus luteum. But the main thing is if the egg doesn't leave the follicle, you don't make any progesterone that month. And of course, that means that you don't downregulate the receptors. This is part of the very big and long, long observed connection between extreme stress and the development of breast cancer. Another thing that was really emphasized in this talks was environmental toxins. And Monique had a statistic that made me sit up and uh, take notice. She said the average American woman is exposed to 150 different environmental estrogens a day. These xenoestrogens are present, for example, in the BPA. So every time you pick up one of those receipts, you know, when you when you ask for a receipt, if you touch that receipt, the BPA absorbs through your skin. It's fat soluble. It goes right through your skin. And we can pick it up if we draw blood from your arm. We can tell which hand had a receipt in it 15 minutes ago. That's kind of spooky, right? These compounds are also in shampoo and just about most soaps, almost all household cleaning products, unless they are specifically formulated without them. Body lotion, cosmetics, hair products. I mean, the list goes on and on. And how many, I was looking this morning as I'm listening to this lecture, I'm looking at my shelf and I'm going, okay, oh, that's got, hmm, all right, that's got, um, uh, you know, that's got that in it, that's got that in it, that's got paraben, uh, that's got microplastic, you know, that's got a... That's got a silicon preservative. And, you know, you really start rethinking your product use. And I don't use that many products, but a few of them definitely are going to have to be uh, thrown away and find something else when I run out. Not going to stay on those. Uh, A lot of the household cleaners, Method is a a good inexpensive uh, company that is right up there on the shelf along next to the 409, but they don't have anything in there that's a xenoestrogen. So I do recommend that you look carefully at how you clean your house. And if you're going to be using one of these products, by all means, wear gloves. Turns out mitochondrial health is super important. Hormones are actually made in the mitochondria of the cells of the ovary. 
That's where they're manufactured. And you need micronutrients like manganese and iron and zinc and all of those things. And it's important that you get enough of them. Another big source of too much estrogen or too much xenoestrogen is visceral fat. And that means belly fat, okay? Fat in the middle. If uh, fat in the butt's not so much of a problem, but abdominal fat is capable of making 17 different hormones. One of them's good. The other 16 are not good. They're pro-inflammatory. They raise cholesterol. They induce insulin resistance. And aromatase takes testosterone, which we ladies still make in our body, and turns it into estrogen. So it increases estrogen levels. It also, in men, increases estrogen levels. And that's where you get the man breasts. You know, the so-called dad bod is basically belly fat first, and then breast growth, breast tissue growth from the extra estrogen, which may or may not affect their sexual functioning, but definitely affects their cancer risk. And what cancer? Prostate cancer. And then we get caught in this loop because insulin, if you're insulin resistant, your pancreas is pumping out more insulin to control your blood sugar. Insulin actually stimulates the cells to make more aromatase, which is going to make you more insulin resistant, which is going to make more insulin. And stress all by itself turn on aromatase. And if this wasn't bad enough, everything I just mentioned, visceral fat, aromatase, insulin, and stress, all of these decrease your sex hormone binding globulin. This is a protein that circulates in your blood and keeps estrogen from getting to those receptors even when the levels are high. If you've got enough binding hormone, at least, that's how it's supposed to work. So if you're overweight, you're almost certainly going to have more estrogen. And you're almost certainly going to have an easier time at menopause because you're not going to have as many hot flashes as the stringy lady over uh, in the corner, unless, of course, that stringy lady is a vegetarian and eats a ton of soy, in which case she'll be protected by the phytoestrogens in the soy. And of course, I'm going to segue just for a second, because how could I resist? I have breast cancer. Should I avoid soy? That's an interesting question because it's contextual. Soy does contain genistin and diadzin, and these are compounds that do fit into estrogen alpha receptors. They aren't very good at stimulating those receptors, but they do occupy them and provide some stimulation. So let's consider two situations. You have a woman with a ton of estrogen in her system who's over-estrogenated, and she's not breaking down her estrogen properly, and she doesn't have enough sex hormone binding globulin to uh, mask all of that estrogen. That woman probably should be eating soy because the phytoestrogens in the soy are going to block some of her estrogen receptors and mitigate or reduce the risk of having all that estrogen around stimulating things. So for men and women uh, who have a lot of estrogen, soy can be very helpful. If a person is taking a drug to inhibit estrogen, like an aromatase inhibitor, if a person had breast cancer with estrogen receptor, and now they're postmenopausal, maybe they're taking tamoxifen, or they're taking uh, Femera or one of the other aromatase inhibitors, this person probably should stay away from soy because in that situation, even the mild stimulation in the absence of any other estrogen is going to be more stimulation than you would otherwise have. So uh, we're going to talk in a little bit about uh, a similar effect. It's kind of, The body's full of this Goldilocks effect where there's a just right amount and there's too much and there's too little. And sometimes you have to consider the context. It isn't that soy is good or soy is bad. It's who are we talking about and when in their life cycle and what are the other circumstances going on. So now we're going to just walk it back just a little and summarize the functional medicine approach to breast cancer. First of all, it's a circle. Everything that you do has an effect positive or negative. I'm going to start with sleep. Optimizing sleep 
because when you're asleep, you're secreting melatonin. And melatonin all by itself is uh, beneficial for detoxification, and it influences the production of the estrogen receptors such that your alpha to beta ratio shifts in the right direction for prevention. Also, it's a strong anti-inflammatory. So let's move over to inflammation. You want to reduce inflammation. Inflammation creates free radicals. Free radicals damage DNA. And we're back to the same problem that we were with the 4-hydroxyestrogen adduct. It's a lottery ticket. Oh, you just bought another lottery ticket in a lottery you don't want to win. You've got to treat inflammation, support the anti-inflammatory mechanisms in the gut, manage estrogen, and also manage vitamin D. Vitamin D is very protective here because it is a modulator of inflammation. Curcumin, quercetin, green tea extract, all of these other things also help reduce the level of inflammation that any given stimulus is going to create, but they do it in a way that doesn't interfere with your body's ability to respond to a true threat. And that's really magic. We don't have any drugs that will be selective like that, but yet these plant compounds are selective. So you want to get rid of that 4-hydroxyestrogen. You want to make lots of glutathione. N-acetylcysteine is a compound that helps your body make glutathione. Most people will have more glutathione if they take that as a supplement. Uh, Methylation involves knowing whether you have MTHFR or COMT. We've talked about both of those in the gene of the week. This time, I'm not giving you a gene of the week this week because I want to pull all of it together so you understand the importance of these compounds. We covered 1B1 last week for a reason. These are super important. Address estrogen metabolism. Well, we've talked about decreasing aromatase, controlling your weight, uh, improving that ratio. Taking uh, one of the best ways to do this is crucifers. Taking lots and lots of uh, those healthy green vegetables, the broccoli sprouts, uh, will really help with detoxification. The crucifers ha- contain glycosinolates, which are extremely beneficial to the gut and are anti-inflammatory in and of themselves. Everything's connected. You see, this is why we call it a web in functional medicine. It all impacts everything else. I think I've covered avoiding toxins. That's another important compound here. And cancers eat sugar. So don't eat sugar all the time. You want to treat your insulin resistance. You want to treat your obesity. You want to eat a high-fiber, plant-based diet. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And you want to lower your IGF-1, which is uh, insulin growth factor type 1. That's one of the things we're blocking with these new obesity drugs that people are taking, like Ozembic is one of the brand names, semaglutide. I covered that about 6 to 12 months ago on the show. But this is an important strategy for diabetes, blocking this. I don't think we have the data yet whether it's going to have an, an effect on cancer. Some of the preliminary data suggests that it may actually have an adverse effect with respect to pancreatic cancer, but I don't think that's well enough established in humans to start freaking out yet. However, you know, it's in there on the warnings if you give someone these drugs. The best way to treat insulin resistance is to reduce your starch and your sugar. Don't eat bread. Don't eat bread and jam. Don't uh, have cookies. Have fruit, you know, have fruit instead. Berries are great, high fiber, low glycemic index. So eat in the low glycemic area. Don't feed the tumor. Don't feed the tumor you don't know you have because it's too small to see. And yes, mammograms are a very good idea. I definitely recommend them. I think that we can possibly individualize how frequently. I mean, on the average, everyone should have a mammogram every year, but there's some people who probably are are low enough risk that they could uh, do that less frequently. I know that's heresy because all we can manage in public health is a one-size-fits-all kind of approach. And it's not. It's like pantyhose, right? One size does not fit all. One size kind of fits most people. But 
not all. So let's get to diet. What are some of the things you can do? Well, first of all, get your red blood cell mercury checked. That's a simple test. And you may think you're doing yourself a great favor by having fish, but various different types of fish have vastly different levels of mercury. I was just looking at this today, and I was quite surprised to see how great the variation is in canned tuna, depending on the type of canned tuna. So some of them are probably okay. And I'm going to have to do more research and maybe do a a more thorough presentation about that. But for the most part, you got to check your mercury levels. And a red blood cell mercury tells you about your ongoing environmental exposure. And that's really the first place to start. Assuming that's okay, and your vitamin D level is at least in the 40s, those are the two first steps. And the second step is diet. Those crucifers are huge. Eat your broccoli. Eat your vegetables. Make sure that you get enough of those crucifers. One serving every day of something. Uh, I generally alternate between broccoli sprouts at lunch or in a shake and then some kind uh, or some kind of crucifer. You know, we probably have uh, broccoli or cauliflower or Brussels sprouts for four evenings a week, so I don't have to eat quite so many salads. Uh, reduce, reduce your alcohol. That's a huge one because alcohol reduces the amount of sex hormone binding globulin. By the way, you can get a blood test for sex hormone binding globulin, and if you have high levels of estrogen... Uh, you probably should. So dense breast ladies, get your inflammatory marker, HSCRP, get your estrogen level, estradiol level, see where you fall in your age cohort, and get your SHBG and your progesterone. And let's find out if you're in balance and whether we can play with that to improve your risk. A low glycemic load diet. Fasting turns out to be really helpful. Maybe a 24-hour fast or just a juice fast once every three or four weeks could be extremely beneficial. If you're getting chemotherapy for a cancer, and not this is not just breast cancer, fasting before your chemo and getting your chemo later in the day are both associated with better outcomes. So you can exploit the body's natural circadian rhythm to improve the effects of your chemo. How about that? Purple foods. Uh, purple grapes, blueberries, eggplant, things like that, those raise your levels of resveratrol, which is very, very good. They Purple foods in general inhibit estrogen receptor alpha. They increase estrogen receptor beta, and they increase NERF2, which is a gene cassette that is anti-inflammatory. I'm not a Nazi on the dairy, but I will tell you, organic, no bovine growth hormone, and you want to know about the husbandry practices. I just learned this today at this conference. The cows are kept pregnant most of the time so that they are always having calves, so they're always stimulating their milk. Well, that makes sense for dairy cows, but it's not just the bovine growth hormone, right? It's also the estrogen and this progesterone. The animal estrogen and progesterones are enough like ours. Remember, Premarin, pregnant mare's urine? Well, they'll attach to our estrogen receptors, and some of them make even nastier attachments to DNA if they go down that 4-hydroxy pathway. So you actually want happy cows that aren't kept pregnant all the time, that are wandering around eating grass. And by the way, there are local organic dairies that do exactly that, that treat their animals kindly and let, let them have actual lives. And honestly, that's the cheese and yogurt I guess I'm going to have to eat rather than the uh, stuff that comes from commercial dairies. And not just for the cows, but, but for me. Time for some emails. And we had some good ones this week, so let's go right there. First of all, from Peggy in Long Island, New York. Peggy writes... 
Dear Dr. Don, I love your show and I'm a loyal listener of the recordings from the archive. I'm 56 years old and five months ago I was diagnosed with colon cancer following a colonoscopy and subsequently had a resection to remove the mass along with 10 inches of my sigmoid colon. Luckily, it was stage one and I am now in surveillance for the next five years. I've changed my life since eating a low-carb, high-fiber, no-sugar diet, going to the gym five times a week, doing both cardio and weights. I'm nearing a 60-pound weight loss. That's in five months. Go you, Peggy. And feel great. My question to you is, do you have any suggestions on what more I can be doing or taking to stave off any recurrence? Thanks so much. And I listen to your podcasts on the treadmill every day. Well, Peggy, cancer. It's a series of unfortunate events leading to cells losing control of their growth and their attachment to each other, and eventually gaining the ability to migrate to distant sites in the body where their growth destroys vital organs. Some of these events are a lot like climate change, and they affect a broader area than just where the landslide or the disastrous wildfire occurred. It's a regional problem. And we think of cancer of the breast as a regional problem of the breast tissue for all of the reasons I've been going on about in this uh, program. And the same thing's true for colon. So the dietary changes you've made, increasing fiber, very good. Low carbohydrate, very good. But there are other things that we need to think about because statistically, the greatest risk factor for having a new cancer is having already had a cancer. There are things that we can't fix, and there are things that we can work with rather than working against. And we're going to talk about some of those. So you've made a great start, but you've also been through a lot. And so your microbiome is literally your first line of defense against cancer. If you have inflammation in the gut on an ongoing basis, you are missing the first and most practical defense, which is having an anti-inflammatory microbiome. So I would recommend microbiome typing, looking at the ratio of good bacteria to bad bacteria. And that's such a stupid way to put it, good bacteria. It's much more nuanced than that. But you're looking for an anti-inflammatory milieu. You're looking for normal levels of IgA. You're, you're looking to identify and reduce any food sensitivity and identify and mitigate any leaky gut. And you can do a lot of testing for this, or you can just do additional things and you really should be working with a functional medicine practitioner. I think the guidance that I can give you on the radio in response to an email is not as thorough as what you really need, but I'm giving you the highlights. The second thing is to take a look at your detox and, again, the environmental intakes and whether there are uh, it, whether there are toxins in your environment, which could include metals in your body like mercury or lead. It could include uh, mold toxins. That uh, It could include things that are off-gassing that you're not able to process properly or you're not processing well because of genetic variation. So knowing that, you could mitigate those inputs, reduce your toxic burden, and over time reduce your risk of recurrent colon cancer. One thing you know you would ask it to a person who's 56 is, do you still have any silver fillings left? Because those are going to have some mercury in them. And no matter how good your body is at detoxifying it, when it gets into the intestine, it's pro-inflammatory. I mentioned sleep and how important that is. It's really important for cancer survivors to get that seven to eight hours of sleep, what their body naturally requires. And if that means using sleep-inducing herbs initially or taking extra melatonin or doing all of the sleep hygiene things that have been discussed on previous programs that you've probably listened to, that needs to be made to happen. And you have to reduce your life stress. Rather, I, I'm going to say you don't have to divorce your husband or you know, give your child to your sister. What you may need to do is work on your reaction because 
Just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder, stress is in the eye of the beholder. So working on how you react to what's around you is an extremely helpful approach here. And in terms of things you can take, well, flaxseed was mentioned in reference to the estrogen issue, but flaxseed's also a really nice uh, fiber and has anti-inflammatory effects in the colon. A natural anti-inflammatories, I think, are really important for you. Taking curcumin, for example, or boswellia at appropriate doses. Boswellia is about 503 times a day. Curcumin is maybe 1,000 milligrams of highly absorbable a day. Quercetin, which also modulates the allergic response in the mast cells, another pro-inflammatory factor that's wandering around in your gut that is associated with cancer, histamine overload. Quercetin, 500 milligrams twice a day. Green tea extract, maybe 500 milligrams or five cups of green tea, if you can manage that and still get good sleep, then that's a more natural strategy. It's so important to think of yourself as an ecosystem. And if you consider that you're the ecosystem and you have control over a lot of what's going on in your ecosystem, the cancer is the wildfire, the cancer is the the landslide or the flood, you want to do everything you can to strengthen the resilience of the land, that is to say, your body, you, that land can recover from cancer, recover fully and go on to a normal lifespan. But if you do all of these other things to change the environment that was present before, and you've done many of them, then you've drastically improved your chances. And there's nothing wrong with that. We're going to do another email, this one from Jennifer. Jennifer in Oregon writes, vitamin D level and neutrophils. While listening to your show today, I heard you mention you would order tests for a patient whose vitamin D levels went down, even though she is supplementing with vitamin D. I take a thousand units of vitamin D a day. My level has gone from 46 in 2019 to 57 in 2021, and then down to 31 in 2022. My absolute neutrophils have been low since 2019, between 1.5 and 1.8. Should I be worried? I'm 54 and feel great. I rarely get sick. Thanks for your advice. Well, first of all, Jennifer, when you say that you, I assume you continue to take your 1,000 units of vitamin D throughout that period of time. If that's the case, uh, the first thing I would do is go up to 5,000 units and then test both 1,25 vitamin D and 25 hyphen vitamin D in about six months. And also have them get an inflammatory test at the same time, like an HSCRP. So if your vitamin D goes up, we're happy about that. And we want to see that vitamin D go up. If it doesn't, then you're having an absorption problem or that 1,25 vitamin D is going to be high, which means inflammation. And then you have to go looking for infection. Now, the low neutrophils are a clue, okay, because the low neutrophils could be from food sensitivity or a leaky gut. When you have food sensitivities, you produce antibodies in your bloodstream and in your gut against foods. And it's not an allergy. It's an inflammatory effect, however, and that, of course, can lead to leaky gut. The inflammation in the gut will cause the body to convert the vitamin D into 125 vitamin D. That's the active form. That's the anti-inflammatory form. And it's consumed. You're using it up because your body's trying to handle that inflammation. So I have an open question for you. What happened in 2019? What changed? Because it looks like things changed in your gut. And maybe it was just, hey, maybe what happened in 2019 was that the next year was 2020. But the levels went up. Uh, until 2021, and then down in 2022. So something's changed. Maybe you just aren't making as many pancreatic enzymes, or you're not absorbing fat as well. There's a lot of possibilities here, but I hope I've given you some idea of how to proceed. Okay, so we're going to try to get... Hello, are you there? Yep, you're on the air. Gotcha. Yeah. Please, why is the um, one of the symptom reactions of herpes... um, and itchiness occasionally if they happen to pop up in mm-hmm. 
Well, that's that's an easy one. And uh, the answer is the nerve is sick and herpes goes to sleep and hibernates in the spinal column. If it's oral herpes, it's in the ganglion coming out of the brain because, you know, it's the brain. But basically, it goes to sleep at, at the right around the nucleus, in the nucleus, in fact, of the cell. And it sits there hibernating. And then something causes it to wake up. And when it first wakes up, it makes a few copies of itself. It's irritating to the nerve. It kind of makes the nerve react. It, the nerve fires off more often. And that's what we experience as an itch or a tingle. It's a it's a very strange sensation. You can touch the area and it feels maybe slightly numb and yet you're yet it feels itchy at the same time. So and uh, sometimes people experience it as a, having a slight burning quality. And when this gets severe, we call it neuropathy. In for example, shingles, that's what's going on with shingles too. That's a herpes virus as well. And in the case of herpes zoster, it goes down to the skin and erupts on your torso or erupts on your uh, on your rear end or something like that, herpes simplex prefers mucous membranes. So it will go to the mouth, the lip, or the genitals, and sometimes the perirectal area, and sometimes dental hygienists will get herpes uh, simplex on their finger because of a, a trauma through a glove. But for the most part, it prefers the mucous membranes. Once it wakes up, it may or may not go all the way to blistering. And we now have drugs and many people who experience herpes wait for that little tingle itch. And it's like, oh, it's going to start. I'm going to go ahead and start on my drug and try to head it off at the pass so that I don't get the outbreak. And that works if you get to it in time. Any follow-up question? Well, it was just strange. I've uh, had a I don't know how long, but it doesn't erupt unless I'm under stress. Right, because when you're under stress, your immune system is uh, suppressed. And so you're going to have less ability to jump on it it, and uh, suppress it. And about two weeks ago, uh, why I called about it is because there was a strange, usually erupt on the genitals, but outside my major labia, a... um, larger bump. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh my God, do I have a tumor? I no, no, no. Then, no, it, no. Went, then it went away. Right. I think you had essentially a pimple, you know, a blocked gland, and it, and it blew up. Thank you very much for the call. And I want to create just a little bit of space here at the end for what I promised you, which was that uh, syndrome, uh, that crazy syndrome uh And so let me start by reading you a case report. All right. This was a couple of young girls. Uh, They were in their late teens. So let's call them 16-year-old girls. They were dizygotic twin sisters. That means that two eggs in the same womb at the same time. So not identical. And all of a sudden, and... I mean, all of a sudden, within two days of each other, they had a severe and simultaneous change in their behavior. They began restricting their food intake, being very unwilling to eat. They developed obsessive-compulsive disorder. They were, uh, particularly, there were two. One had a mild version of this. One had a severe version. The severe one had obsessions. She was worried about contamination she was having magical thoughts. She was superstitious. She developed all kinds of compulsions and behaviors, washing, checking, symmetry, counting things, being uh, free-floating anxiety, being afraid of the dark, uh, being afraid of her own body, and intermittent visual and auditory hallucinations. Now, it sounds almost like schizophrenia, which of course is what happens at that age. It's when it starts showing up. This young girl had that and everything you can possibly imagine, including uh, severe nightmares, ADD, her handwriting changed, she developed tremors, proximal muscle weakness, dizziness, headache, joint pain, and the the less affected sibling, the, the other twin, not so much of the physical stuff, just compulsion to clean, attention deficit, and weakness and headaches. 
So what was going on? They were consuming only just a few foods, no foods that didn't have an order. Uh, They didn't have the psychological markers. And so they got a mega, mega medical workup. And the only positive result they found initially was the lymphocytes, the white blood cells that fight disease, were a little higher, and and the vitamin D level was low. Uh, they both had negative throat cultures, but their PCR test uh, was and was also negative for SARS. But later on, they were tested for antibodies, and these young girls had a couple of. SARS infections a couple of weeks before they started with all of this psychological stuff. They were suffering from a very particular syndrome. It's a very weird one, okay? PANDAS is what it's called. And PANDAS stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric Disorder Associated with Strep Infections. That's the S on the end. Now, this has been known to occur with strep throat, and it generally occurs within a month after strep throat. It's some kind of autoimmune disorder that's triggered by the strep infection. Other disorders triggered by strep infections, rheumatic fever, where the antibodies attack the heart valve. There's a strep-associated kidney disease called uh, strep glomerular nephritis, where the antibodies attack the kidney. It just depends on what markers the individual cells have on their surface, but strep can match them or mimic them enough that the immune system becomes confused and goes after it. Now, in the case of these young ladies, it's thought that this was actually a post-COVID effect. And they tried treating them medically with all of the usual drugs. Typically what's done is antidepressants and antibiotics because we're treating something that's a bacteria when we're treating strep. Uh, Those were ineffective. And so eventually they were treated with IVIG. This is intravenous human immunoglobulin. And the less affected sister made it a full recovery. The severely affected sister had drastic improvement literally overnight from IVIG. So what is this stuff? It's pooled immunoglobulins, IgG, from several thousand healthy blood donors. So this is pulled out of plasma. It's got antibodies to external antigens, which we expect, but it also has something called naturally occurring autoantibodies. These are embedded into our natural DNA. This is sort of what we would call the raw antibody, the germline, the sort of blueprint for antibodies, but it it isn't trained to attack anything. What it does seem to do is modulate the immune system. IVIG was originally developed to be given to people with immunodeficiency, low levels of antibody. There are a couple of disorders where we know that the person doesn't make antibodies. It was developed initially for that, but those are rare. Then it was found to work in an autoimmune kidney disease called Wiscott-Aldrich syndrome, and then in a more, far more common one called idiopathic thrombopenic purpura, ITP. So IVIG is now used for a wide variety of autoimmune disorders. And the fact that these girls responded so quickly and dramatically to it is at least some pretty strong evidence that they were suffering from an immune disorder of some type. Was it antibody-mediated? Possibly. But as I delved a little deeper in this, I, I found out that many of the things that IVIG is observed to do resemble nothing as much as the effects of platelet-rich plasma. They neutralize, in the case of IVIG, it neutralizes pathogenic autoantibodies by attacking them, which is nice, and it probably has those naturally occurring antibodies probably are there to act as a break on an overzealous production of immunoglobulins. But they also have a lot to do with clearing the antibodies off of things and reducing complement production. 
and they also work by preventing the antibodies from being absorbed. And the antibody antigen complexes, whatever they are, don't trigger the positive cascade. They don't feed forward to an increased inflammation. You block that cycle of call and response and response and response and response that comes from a normal immune cascade. Without the breaks on the system, COVID can allow the immune system to run roughshod on itself. And I think that was probably what we were seeing here. We have just a very short amount of time. And so I'm going to give you a cool and interesting news of the weird as our last story. In the last minute, let me tell you about a surgery that took place in Italy last month. Italian doctors successfully removed a brain tumor from a patient who was not only conscious, we always keep them conscious when we're taking out a brain tumor, but he played his saxophone continuously throughout the nine-hour procedure. This 35-year-old played the sax during surgery so that they could map the various sections of his brains and preserve the areas that are responsible for his ability to play music. By lighting up his brain, by playing his music, they were able to work around, uh, get the tumor out without cutting anything that was critical to his ability to function. So they heard the entire soundtrack of uh, Love Story through the procedure, as well as many uh, opera arias and live renditions of the Italian national anthem. Quoting the doctor, Dr. Christina Brogna, we are operating on the sense of self, on the personality. The patient will tell you what is important in his life, and it is your job as the surgeon to protect his wishes. Well, Dr. Brogna, I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, That's our job as doctors, is to listen to the patient's wishes and not impose our own. Well, that's about all for this week's podcast. Please go to AskDrDawn.com for news about our future plans, or follow my tweets at at AskDRDawn. For now, this is Dr. Dawn saying so long and stay healthy. Ask Dr. Dawn is brought to you by Jiva Media. Production and editing by Charles Mansky. Music by John Scoville.